Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Uh, we are here with Dr. Patrick Anderson. This is this is uh, T. Trevor. Oh, quick um summary of places to find us uh check out go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks to become a patron and a member and get access to all the back catalog but also check us out on Colin. we have a Colin show now where uh through your smartphone or your desktop you can cue anthony omini and myself for a show called media masochist where we uh discuss things happening in media social media print media internet, whatever, TV shows, movies, and we uh, take calls from people and you can call in, discuss things with us. We talk about politics there as well. It's called Media Masochist. It's on the call-in app. So go to the call-in app, search Media Masochist. You'll find it. And we do it a couple of times a week. And yeah, without further ado, uh, Dr. Anderson, if you don't mind uh, telling us who you are, how you came to this area of study that we're about to discuss, which is uh, critical race theory and Africana studies, uh, including a very interesting story you were telling us about your connection to a former um, guest of ours. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to the conversation. I am currently an assistant professor of philosophy at Central State University, which is a small HBCU, the um, only state HBCU um, in the state of Ohio. And um, I did my graduate work, my philosophy PhD at Texas A&M University. And this is the connection that you're mentioning. And uh, Dr. Tommy Curry was my dissertation committee chair. So he was sort of a mentor and advisor for me um, as I was going through grad school and, and developing my, my knowledge, my background in CRT, especially, and uh, Africana philosophy more generally. And I discovered you through Black Agenda Report, and you had this uh, three-part series on CRT at a time when CRT was um, highly in the news. I was going to have you on around that time, but then I came down with COVID and started a new job, and my whole my whole schedule got turned about. But I'm kind of glad that we got to be able to talk about it a little bit after the fact, because I felt I felt like in the midst of that media circus, it um was easy to get drowned out. Like I like I feel like there's a little more room and space to kind of talk about it in a very uh casual, nuanced, nuanced way that I feel like the climate at the time was not lending itself, lending itself to. And I was kind of curious about what your thoughts were about in a very general sense, we're gonna get into more detailed sense, but in a, in a general sense, like what your thoughts were about why that controversy happened when it did and and what you think the lasting result of it kind of is. Do, do you think we're past the worst of it? Because I kind of feel like we're not seeing it discussed as much as uh, we used to. And I'm wondering um, why that is and if they've moved on to something else or if they're gonna renew that attack on it. Yeah, I mean, the, the attacks on critical race theory kind of come in waves. So, you know, what we're seeing here in the last, you know, maybe two years or so isn't a new thing. It's just a revival of, of an old, um, sort of right wing, uh, 
strategy to kind of fear monger um, back in the mid 90s when the the key texts book of critical race theory articles was put together and published you know the big red book uh, as people might know it um, there was this sort of uproar about CRT and how it was un-American and, and all these sorts of things and it was making you know national mainstream news it was in the washington post and, and other mainstream uh, media organizations were publishing articles about about crt negative articles in the same kind of way then you fast forward and uh you have the obama Derek bell controversy where people were trying you know right-wingers were trying to make Obama be this sort of like uh, anti-American white person hating thing based on what they thought Derek Bell was all about. Um, and then you fast forward and, you know, to this sort of more recent controversy. And so I would say, give it six, seven years, we're going to see the same thing again. Um, you know, what, what, whenever, whenever the conditions are right for this sort of thing, we're, we're going to see this revived. So, um, you know, we should really, I mean, this is sort of taking a, a cue from Bell. We should really think about this more cyclically than linearly, like something led up to this, you know, from the past or something like that. We should see it as sort of coming in waves, circling back around. And and we'll see this again. Uh, I'm certain of it. And, and something, something that uh, kind of depresses me about this whole debate and you touch on this well not touch on it you dive deep into it in uh your three-part series particularly part two is this kind of idea that uh the game is rigged on both sides in that um the anti-crt people are kind of playing fast and loose with what crt is and what it isn't but the people who supposedly are the pro crt side and the so-called good guys in this um, debate are also misrepresenting Derek Bell and have a vested interest in suppressing the true, what you call black radical uh, tradition of uh, Derek Bell. And the way, the way you laid it out was, was pretty good, but if you don't mind, um, you know, talking about it in broad terms, we'll get more in depth with it later, but in broad terms, the different schools of uh, CRT as you, as you labeled them. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So, um, you know, coming back to, I think, you know, this is one of the earlier questions that maybe I didn't really uh, get to address, but the reason I came to write these articles, this this three-part series for, for Black Agenda Report in the first place was that um, I was waiting for someone to articulate this aspect of CRT, you know, in terms of the intellectual history, some of the epistemological and um, and axiological orientations of different like sub camps or different subgroups of, of CRT, these different sort of um, uh, trajectories within the tradition or orientations within the tradition, and nobody was doing it. And uh, unfortunately, you know, I saw another article in Black Agenda Report um, that was saying, you know, it was responding to the right wing claim that CRT in general and Derek Bell in particular are Marxist. Right. That's what some of the some of the right wing uh, sort of fear mongers wanted to say about it, which is not true or if it is true you have to really nuance this in in a way that that no one was doing and the article i saw in black and general report was saying you know crt isn't marxist crt is liberal and i wanted to go okay if if even black agenda report is going to publish articles that get this wrong you know 
then maybe I do need to step in and write something. And, um, and so that's when I emailed Glenn Ford, who at the time was the executive editor of Bar. And I said, I've got this idea for a three part series. Would you be interested in it? And I had published with them before. So, you know, we had some rapport, we had some, uh, um, relationship and he was like yeah absolutely write them up and send them over and so i did and um and that's how these these pieces came to be because i didn't see any other essays in popular media in independent media or in sort of uh black radical leftist sort of outlets getting this right it was almost like everybody across the spectrum was ignoring what i thought was a fundamentally important feature of of understanding crt and that is the difference between the realists and the idealists and it's not like this is a, a secret it's not like this is hard to know about in fact the one of the uh books that's always cited in these sort of like you know newsweek has an op-ed about crt and they're and they say oh well the six basic you know principles of crt are such and such but uh and they always cite you know the introduction to um critical race theory reader by stefanik and delgado but the idealist realist debate or clash is discussed at length in that book and still no one was talking about it um not to mention the fact that derrick bell was almost never brought up and i don't know how you can have a meaningful discussion on crt without talking about the man uh who is widely considered to be the progenitor the father the founder of crt by both realists and um idealists uh, alike one thing i wanted to talk about was um I find it very interesting that you said that, you know, even a place like Black Agenda Report, which is a place that I consider to be pretty reliable as far as counteracting the neoliberal narrative of race discourse, you know, even someone like, like someone there can, you know, fall into this kind of uh, trap of uh, erasing or downplaying Derek Bell's racial realist version of um, CRT from the narrative. And my thought on why that is, is because a lot of the people that we see who are supposedly proponents of CRT, like you said, you know, do the same thing. They downplay Derek Bell's um, role. They'll na- they'll name check him. They'll be like uh, CRT uh, founded by Derek Bell. They'll give a little quick reading of his resume, and then they kind of jump to the people he supposedly inspired and and describe what is in a sense, in essence, what you call the liberal idealist version of CRT, or what some might call the neoliberal iteration of CRT. And what I want you to kind of describe is why you think the Christopher Rufos and the right-wing uh, critics of liberal CRT kind of distort and downplay Derek Bell, but also why the people in yeah. the news so, um, yeah, do it as well. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, a very interesting phenomenon. And um, outside of like the tradition of CRT proper, I would say there may be two different kind of things and and perhaps more, but two central primary kinds of things at play. The first one is American exceptionalism. And the second one is what we might call like white affect. So the first problem, American exceptionalism, uh, the idealist trend, and we can talk you know, a little bit in a minute about what really distinguishes what has been identified as the idealist trend in CRT versus the realist uh, trend in CRT, but the idealist trend tends to 
assume a kind of American exceptionalism in the sense that, well, we have a great country, but its its founding principles have been um, you know implemented in a flawed way, or um, there's some kind of contingent shortcoming that if only we just do this thing, we could correct things and advance equality or democracy or justice or something like this, that there's some kind of kernel of goodness we need to bring out to fight all of the flawed manifestations or, you know, the the trips along the way, the stumbling along the way uh, toward equality and this sort of thing uh, to, you know, as Richard Rorty would put it right, achieve our country to borrow the phrase as he borrows the phrase from um, James Baldwin, the idea that we just need to make America what it's supposed to have always been. Um, Derek Bell and his writings, more broadly speaking, are really hard to reconcile with that sort of thing. Um, Derek Bell is more like Martin Delaney and less like Frederick Douglass. So if we want to take it back to the 19th century debates among Black academics in the United States about what is the real nature of Black oppression, anti-Black racism, and what is to be done about it, the difference between Douglass and Delaney, I think, is illustrative. Because Douglas did have this idea that, well, if you just extend the and you know if you just extend the uh, protections of the Constitution to black people and slavery, then we can actually achieve some kind of multiracial democracy, you know, in this republic that we call the United States of America. And I think even Douglas was doing this as a kind of strategic um, approach rather than rather than something he truly deeply believed. But Delaney wasn't going to play that at all. Martin Delaney, uh, sometimes called the father of Black nationalism, one of the early uh, advocates of emigration to Africa, um, he was like, look, we're never going to have equality in this country because we're just simply outnumbered. And to have any kind of freedom, you have to have, you have to be part of the sovereign element of the nation that you're in. And uh, because the numbers didn't uh, work out, as Delaney would argue, white people were always going to be sovereign and black people were always just going to be at best asking for privileges from, you know, from their masters. And that's why he was like, we're going to have to peace out. So Delaney's philosophy doesn't really resonate with these sorts of notions of American exceptionalism the way that Frederick Douglass does. And when you look at the take up of these two philosophers, um, within Africana philosophy, in the discipline of philosophy, Douglas is widely popular, and there's a lot of stuff written about him. And Delaney is, uh, at at best, mentioned in passing, um, but most of the time completely ignored or uh, deliberately misread. And uh, and so I think that when you look at this Douglas Delaney difference, at least in the discipline of philosophy, as they've been taken up, or in the case of Delaney, you know, uh, systematically overlooked, you can almost see how that works with Derrick Bell and CRT realism versus the critical race theory idealist tradition. The idealist tradition resonates very well with this idea of American exceptionalism. Um, just educate the white people and, and keep fighting for justice because the idea of equality is there in, in America. We just have to make it a reality. And Derek Bell, look, we're never going to have equality in the United States. So we need to have some other kinds of goals for preserving ourselves as a community and as a people. 
Um, and because Derek Bell's philosophy doesn't resonate with American exceptionalism, uh, I think mainstream liberal politics has an interest in, in sort of pushing it aside. So that's the American exceptionalism aspect, the white affect aspect. And I think this is, is a lot easier to explain. And so, you know, requires, uh, less exposition, but the idea is that Derek Bell's philosophy doesn't make a space where it's like, and this is what white people are supposed to do. And this is how they can fight for justice. Um, he does say he does have essays about this and white people can and should read them, but that's not his focus. His focus isn't going to white people and say, Hey, look, like we're just going to teach you how to be less racist or how to be not racist. Um, Derek Bell is like, Hey, why don't we, you know, why don't we as black people start focusing on conversations within our own community amongst ourselves about what is going to be the the best uh you know replacement goal for this striving for equality right let's set up something else that we can shoot for that will help us thrive as a people in this you know highly um uh, oppressive context and because white liberals still run the academy and because white people white liberals still run liberal politics in the democratic party in the media and so on um that kind of approach that has a space for you know these so-called good white liberals that's going to be the the image that you get um and so and those are going to be the politics that get taken up versus these other kind of politics that aren't really concerned with pleasing white people um and, and and uh, making them feel like they have a place, or making them feel good, or or all these sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. The um, I think a good place to kind of start, I think, is to flesh out even more explicitly Derek um, Bell's whole history and and theory, because because I feel like his biography is kind of essential in understanding. Um, you know, how he came to believe what he did, like his work for the NAACP and his kind of firsthand, his firsthand interactions professionally and and, and academically, uh, you know, kind of led to his real realist view. So, you know, um, and that's the thing you do in, in part one of the three-part series, you know, it's called The Conspicuous Absence of Derek Bell, Rethinking the CRT Debate. And, you know, in, in part one, you given overview of the work of Derek Bell, the quote unquote father of critical theory. And you start with, um, you know, his, his, uh, biography and the most dominant themes in Bell CRT are materialism, realism, and anti-colonialism. And what I'd like to do is, you know, get a quick overview of, uh, you know, Derek Bell's career and history, and then lead that into how we get to those three strains, those three themes, materialism, realism, and anti-colonialism, and what those three things mean in the context of the realist school of CRT. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, Bell spent his early professional life as a civil rights lawyer, um, working in the Justice Department, working for the NAACP Legal Defense Education Fund, and um over this time, he got to see how civil rights litigation actually worked on the ground. What, what, are the, what are the mechanics of this in the courts, in law? How are these things being pursued? And one of his uh, mentors, very influential on him, was Robert L. Carter, who, um, you know, 
sort of was at the forefront of leading these uh, these litigations and later coming around and saying, even in the, even by 1968, Robert Carter was saying, I think we made some mistakes here. You know, uh, you can go and you can find the essays by by Robert Carter online. And I encourage anybody to go look them up because um, they're very fascinating to see that even as early as 1968, he's saying, um, look, you know, there's a couple mistakes here. The first mistake is that we thought that just changing the law was actually going to fix the problem. And we were wrong about that. Um, it doesn't look like that that's going to be the case. Um, and in addition to that, another mistake is that by taking this legal approach, what we've actually done is undermine our ability to make other kinds of sociological claims about housing, jobs, um, education, you know, really material uh, concerns for everyday families and, and peoples in the community. And um, and so I think this had a profound influence on on Derek Bell and the sort of shifting of his thoughts. So by the time he published his, you know, groundbreaking textbook, Race, Racism and American Law in 1973, um, which was the first textbook to really examine the racial implications of U.S. legal structure. Um, by the time he's there, he's trying to think about what are the limits of actually pursuing these legal strategies. And this is where you start to get some of the foundational essays, you know, of CRT from the work of Derek Bell, his work on um, serving two masters, his piece on interest convergence, all of these start to appear in the mid 70s after he writes that textbook, because now he's thinking about law in this other kind of way. Um, also, just to sort of uh, clarify, you know, some people say, oh, well, you know, Derek Bell wasn't reading enough Marx or he wasn't doing this or that. But really, it's Paul Robeson and Du Bois that are some of the key intellectual inspirations for. Derek Bell. And you can see this not only in his writings about society and the law, but also his writings about, you know, what we might consider to be professional ethics. So just to kind of give an, a, an example here in his book, Confronting Authority, Reflections of an Ardent Protester, Bell is talking about why he decided to, um, you know, protest Harvard Law School's hiring practices and why he ended up leaving. And he offers Robeson and Du Bois as sort of moral exemplars of the kind of people who fight for what they think is right, um, even at the expense of their own interests. And so, you know, really to understand what Bell is doing in his work, you got to go back and understand what Du Bois was up to, what uh, Robeson was up to, and 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 situate Derek Bell in that broader history of of um, African-American philosophy and Africana philosophy more generally. The three themes, materialism, realism, anti-colonialism, mention under materialism two things, interest convergence and racial sacrifice. And those two alone, I think, are a huge departure from what we see on CNN portrayed as CRT when when someone like Joy Reid is uh, debating uh, Christopher Rufo and I and I kind of want to go into those those two things. Uh, what is interest convergence and what is racial sacrifice? Yeah, so um, Bell originally coins the term interest convergence in the seventies to. Uh, describe the process by which the Supreme Court came to the Brown v. Board of Education decision 
1954. For most uh, people, I think the common reading of Brown v. Board, even to this day, is that the Supreme Court just sort of realized that segregation was immoral and coming back to the American exceptionalism and un-American. And so therefore, we need to say that separate but equal is inherently unequal and overturn segregation. And Derek Bell, who is a a studious reader of W.E.B. Du Bois, writes this uh, essay on interest convergence in the 70s saying, no, that's not what this was at all. There was so much pressure from the State Department and the executive branch on the Supreme Court to overturn segregation because it was making the United States look bad in the Cold War. The communists were able to say, you know, to sort of the emerging third world uh, non-aligned movement, hey, why would you go and partner with the United States when you see what they do to non-white people, to black people in the inside their own borders? They don't even give them full uh, citizenship and social standing at home. What makes you think that they would do these to all these, you know, sort of uh, decolonizing countries around the global south? And the U.S. executive branch, the Truman administration, and, uh, you know, especially, they said, well, we need to do something about this. And and so interest convergence means that at the time, Black people had some interest in eliminating segregation. And also this group of policymaking white people had an interest in uh, removing segregation. And so these interests come together and you get this sort of advancement of black interests only because it was actually in the interests of white people, not because they were doing what was moral or what was just, but because they were doing what was in their perceived, you know, would be a perceived benefit for them to do. So you fast forward a couple decades and Derek Bell comes back to this theme of interest convergence in his book, Silent Covenants, which is a reflection on Brown v. Board 50 years after the after the fact. It's published in 2004. And here's where he advances, uh, develops the theory further into uh, his uh, take on what he calls racial fortuity. And for Bell, racial fortuity has is a, is a coin with two sides, essentially. On one side, you have interest convergence, that sometimes Black people in the United States will get some dispensation of justice or some kind of benefits, but only when it's in the interest of whatever white people are making the decision at the time. But on the other side, you have racial sacrifice. And what this means is that those white people who saw it in their interest to dispense with justice or some kind of economic or social benefit for Black people at a certain given time, they can revoke that at any time they need to, to repair white solidarity or to repair sort of uh, a national uh, schism or, or conflict. And in that process, Black people's interests then are sacrificed. So interest convergence and racial sacrifice are two sides of this racial fortuity coin, where depending on what the policymaking whites have in mind, they will either uh, provide justice, benefits, and so on for Black people in the United States, or they'll take it away and sacrifice uh, Black people's interests for the broader sake of the country, or, you know, more specifically for the broader sake of, of what is seen as sort of white people's interests, broadly speaking. 
And I feel like we, once you get that framework, you can see it in a lot of things, like to fast forward to today and this kind of liberal idealist version of um, CRT or um, intersectionality or say like some of the writings of um, Ta-Nehisi Coates and Ibram Kendi and these different things. You can kind of see this idea that in all of them, there is something in them that white liberals can get on board with, you know, like, for example, for intersectionality in part three of your three part series. You make a pretty good case about how a lot of it in the writings of Kimberly Crenshaw is kind of a thought laundering for some more odious white feminist ideas about um, black people, specifically uh, black men. So you can kind of see the interest in, say, a lot of um, white women, but also non-black women of color uh, to perpetuate um, this idea of um, intersectionality. I mean, the white women, their interests can be converged can be converged with in having some notion that if they came from the mouth of a white woman would seem very odious and and problematic, but uh, not so much from a from a black woman. Um, the non-black women of color can find mm-hmm. um, a use of intersectionality in the way that it changes the focus from you know black women to um, womanhood in general. You know, and and now we have like a woman of color instead of uh, black women. And the reason I bring that up is because I think in some ways this dynamic can even work with non-white people of color. Like like e- even they can find interest convergence. You know, reasons to support uh, black black causes. At the same time, the racial sacrifice part, I think also kind of interesting in that you see a lot of these new thinkers, in my view, that they kind of prop up for these uh, liberal con- interest convergence reasons, like, hey, what you're doing helps our white liberal project. Like, you know, instead of asking for material reshapings of society, you just want us to do homework and to um, do penance and give a handful of black bourgeoisie people, you know, good jobs, you know, whatever. We do see at some times, even the liberal idealist um, CRT type person or intersectional person or black neoliberal person can overstep their bounds and suddenly become, you know, a victim of uh, racial sacrifice. Sacrifice. Like, you know, uh, they end up being replaced by someone else or they might, you know, say something that, you know, suddenly goes against the unspoken contract of, li- of liberal interest convergence. So, so it's like the cycle that you describe here and, you know, from Derek Bell's materialist view of CRT, I think it's a good framework that you can kind of see happening over and over again. It's very uh, cyclical. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, it happens over and over again in a very predictable way. You know, um, things happen that help a certain group of white people that uh, makes it in their interest to advocate for racial justice. But a lot of times, even the same people and causes that were one minute ago being promoted by these white people because there was interest convergence, that same person can suddenly be on, be on the outs. And we see sometimes people that, you know, a group of white people champion one day oversteps their bounds and suddenly is... Um, on the on the outs and getting fired, getting replaced by a new black puppet or mascot who continues the you know interest convergence dynamic and the the, the cyclical nature of it all is what really kind of jumped out uh, to me about Derek Bell's materialist view of history. There's kind of um, there's, there's something kind of tragic about how cyclical and predictable it all is. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bell is, he doesn't want to say, you know, let's start with the ideal and read it into history. What he says is, let's be students of history and bring out the patterns that we find from the historical record itself. So, you know, he's not interested in starting with an axiom like America is good or something like that. And then going into history and saying, well, here's all this not good stuff that America has done. How can this be explained? And then coming up with reasons why 
excuses for all of these different kinds of things. What Bell is interested in doing is looking at history and saying, okay, as just a, a matter of study, what does the historical record suggest to us? And on the one hand, he's going to say, well, the historical record doesn't give us any reason to believe that racism, uh, and he may be talking racism in general, or maybe specifically anti-Black racism, racism isn't going to go away in the United States. We have no, uh, we have no evidentiary basis to believe that it will go away. Will the ways that racism manifests change and evolve? Absolutely. But all of these things are based on contingent historical context, depending on which groups of white people are in power, how do they come to uh, decision, um, how do they come to their decisions, and in what instances will be seen to be in their interest to bestow some kind of benefit to Black people or take those benefits away. So Bell isn't starting out with America is good. Bell is starting out with, here's an object to study historically. And for him, you look at these patterns and he's like, yeah, sometimes there are things that seem to be in Black people's interests, like the abolition of slavery and uh, and Reconstruction. But then what happens when white people need to sort of like reconcile their differences? You get the end of Reconstruction, the Tilden Hayes Compromise of 1876. And for Bell, this is the pattern that you see. Every single thing that we would count as a so-called step forward, right, and and in mainstream American politics, this is what is always um, emphasized. Bell wants to then add to that. But remember, every single one of these steps forward is followed by, if not one step, two steps backwards. And this is the racial sacrifice pattern that he's trying to uh, trying to identify. And so, um, and so, this is why I think Bell is compelling in this way because he really wants to look at the historical record and then draw inferences from that, draw conclusions from that historical record, from the historical data, rather than starting out with moralizing, you know, nonsensical claims like America is good, and then trying to reconcile that with all the very terrible things the country has done uh, domestically and globally. So, um, uh, so Derek Bell's point of departure is very different from, from, you know, from that regard. And I think this is what's connected to his anti-colonialism as well. So um, Bell cites Robert Allen's uh, 1969 book, Black Awakening in Capitalist America. And in that book, Allen argues that at that that moment of American history, the first Nixon administration, you were seeing uh, a program or a structure of domestic neocolonialism emerging. And what Alan means by this is that um, just as on the national stage, or sorry, just as on the international stage, colonialism was being replaced by neocolonialism, meaning the direct political rule of the colonies in Africa, Asia, so on, were was being taken out, but replaced by military and economic corporate rule, you were seeing the same kind of thing domestically within the United States. On the international stage, neocolonialism depended on the imperial powers passing over local administration to a kind of elite colonized bourgeoisie um, who would then administer these former colonies um, on behalf of the Western powers while still providing economic access 
access to natural resource extraction um, so that the economic basis of, of imperialism could remain intact while uh, getting rid of the sort of political structure of classical colonialism. And so in doing so, they had to find people from those colonies who would be willing to run the colony as a proxy for the imperial power. Yeah, I think, I, I think that's what Fanon calls the comprador class, right? Yeah. And just as and just as, um, uh, you know, let's say that the, uh, you know, administrators of the neo colony, let's say they stop playing ball. Let's say they stop uh, acquiescing to the imperial powers. Then what happens? Uh, coups, CIA overthrows. This is what you see with Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, and the list goes on and on. And so, um, and so, what Robert Allen is saying in Black Awakening, Capital America, Capitalist America, is a similar kind of thing domestically. He says what we're going to see here during the Nixon administration is this passing over of local power in the major cities that have large black populations to black mayors, black city council persons, and uh, but they're going to be expected to sort of still be the right hand men and women of the overall white power structure. And to the extent that they're not, well, we're going to take them out of power and replace them with uh, other, you know, sort of black leaders or in the language of uh, black agenda report, black misleaders who will um, who will manage these internal colonies, you know, uh, more efficiently, more appropriately. And so Bell is looking at this and saying, okay, if this is kind of what is going on here post-1970 United States domestically, then how are we to think about the rise of this black middle class who has, you know, finally made it, finally integrated into all these political and economic structures? Um, and Bell fears that, well, what this actually does is it creates the illusion of progress where there, in fact, is none. It's actually something that obfuscates the continued colonial relationship, the continued white supremacy. It's something that um, hides that continued domination. And of course, all these sort of black middle-class leaders, whether we want to call them the black bourgeoisie, the blackness leadership class. I mean, there's been so many, you know, different kinds of names proposed for this uh, black upper middle class that integrates itself into the power structure. Uh, Bell's going to say, do they actually sustain the system that keeps your average working class and poor black communities and individuals and families down uh, rather than help it. And this is something that Bell even sort of reflects on in his own sense. He's like, you know, I was the first black person to be on the faculty at Harvard Law School. And it was sort of considered, well, now we've now we've made progress. And Bell's whole thing was, this is not progress. Like just appointing me to this to this faculty appointment doesn't end the white supremacy, the white power structure of Harvard as a university or Harvard Law School in particular. And he was a little bit ref self-reflective in that way in terms of, you know, he wanted to use his position of relative, uh, if limited privilege to help Black people in the United States. But he also was concerned that by doing it in this way, Hey, he might actually be undermining the kind of work he wanted to do. So I think he was very um, uh, reflexive, uh, very uh, sort of self-aware, and 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 very thoughtful about you know his own political programs, what he was trying to achieve, what would the shortcomings be, including these uh, these um, these other kinds of things where he thought maybe he was uh, 
too complicit in the system that he was trying to change or challenge. Um, and so, yeah. And so I think he's sophisticated in that way, you know, that we don't get a lot in, in a lot of other CRT figures. There's a great passage in your article that I think captures that uh, perfectly. It says, Bell levels a class critique against the Black bourgeoisie, whom he sees as having led Black political protests down the wrong path time and time again. He criticizes NAACP lawyers for advancing the organization's demand for integrated schools at the expense of their constituents' demands for better Black schools. He condemns high-profile conservative Black politicians and judges, such as Clarence Thomas, referring to them as quote-unquote overseers. Bell even directs some of this criticism toward himself. As a member the middle-class black intelligentsia, Bell fears he and others like him reinforce the myth of racial progress merely by accepting prestigious academic appointment. Quote, instead of gaining real influence, he writes in Afro-Atlantica legacies, it is more likely that we are legitimizing a system that relegates us to an ineffectual but decorative uh, fringe. And that ineffectual but decorative fringe as a way to describe uh, middle-class black progress, I think is a beautiful turn of phrase, but also like very um, powerful. But in this, in what you described just now about the you know the interest convergence that leads to you know this kind of so-called racial progress but then leads to this racial sacrifice uh to continue the theme of you know self self-reproachment self-criticism i think we can even see that in uh derrick bell's career and legacy himself because there was an interest convergence involved for you know white academia to hire him and to give him a platform and to you know give him work like hey we're appointing a black man as you know uh this this position being you know uh the first black this the first black that but uh i feel from reading your pieces and other people's pieces that his work started kind of diverging from their interests in that you know he was a little too unflinching and scathing and realistic in his um indictments of white supremacy and and america and we've seen since then this type of collective forgetting and marginalization and dilution of his of his of his work like i feel like his intellectual legacy itself is kind of a racial sacrifice, much in the same way his elevation was part of a interest convergence at the time. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think that's a, a, a very, you know, sort of salient insight about his personal career. You know, he comes in, he's kind of, a, a, you know, made a name for himself in the legal profession. He gets this prestigious appointment at Harvard. And, you know, again, to kind of refer back, I think that this, you know, a lot of people really talk about faces at the bottom of the well and um, even silent covenants a lot in, in Bell's work. But Confronting Authority to me is one of the most compelling books that he has because he does talk about, you know, what it means to actually protest. Once and, it, you, and it wasn't just a book title. He confronted authority in his jobs uh, quite often mm-hmm. and left jobs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's an appropriate title because it names exactly what he did, right? It's not just it's not just him, you know, sort of uh, having a fun, you know, literary name for for this work, but it describes the process. And that's why I think this is so compelling, because, you know, he wasn't like, well, I've arrived and now it's my job to sort of just keep this position and make small incremental changes. Bell's not a revolutionary, but he's also not the type to just kind of sit back and and try to negotiate, you know, uh, in ways that are acceptable to the power 
power structure itself. Um, and in that book, he describes e even some of the other black intellectuals saying, you know, well, I don't approve of your protesting. I don't approve of you, you know, sitting out of your classes and so on um, to try to get, you know, one of his goals at Harvard was to get a black woman hired. And uh, and it was like, you know, the, the recurring theme of that is that he was always told, I approve of your objective. I don't approve of your method. And Bell's question was, well, who's to say what is the right method? And, you know, nobody actually thought he'd leave Harvard because he, as he puts it, who in who among the Harvard faculty could imagine leaving Harvard, giving that up based on principle? None of them could actually imagine it. It was inconceivable to most of the faculty, which is why they didn't actually believe that he would do it. And when he did it, everybody was shocked. But that's because Bell was standing on principle and he did he made a decision that went against what are perceived as his own interest of maintaining this prestigious appointment at Harvard, um, you know, to to make the moral point about what he thought was right, what he thought was just. And um, and so, you know, coming back to that to that book, I think, you know, confronting authority gives us a different view of Bell in his everyday work. And this is where that interest convergence racial sacrifice um distinction might be applicable in his in his personal and professional life because Harvard did have an interest in saying look we finally have a, a seasoned um black lawyer civil rights lawyer on our faculty but where the racial sacrifice came in is that they were willing to let him go as as renowned as he was, they were willing to to let him leave Harvard and not compromise with him over the hiring practices of, of the law school, precisely because they perceive that as to being outside of their interests. And yeah. you know, and Bell's clear that Harvard Law School didn't change because he was there. Um, you know, he 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 didn't revolutionize it as an institution. Um, and and for him, that's a testament to how deeply ingrained the momentum is in these kinds of white interest power structures.